You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is episode 26, Krupp Steel Part 9, Alfred Krupp, or Nacht und Nebel. Today I'm recording from the Luftschutzbunker. This episode brought to you by Otis Elevators. When you rise, we shine. Let's start today by talking about the Allied bombing campaigns against Germany. Great Britain was subjected to a brutal bombing campaign, right? Including a punishing and more or less illegal amount of raids on population centers like London. The London Blitz was brutal, and the Nazis started it, to be clear. So, right or wrong, British public opinion was in favor of retaliation, which they did, as the tide of battle turned. Alfred Krupp used the bombings as PR for himself during the war and later on, as he stayed in Essen for the entire war, running his factories and empire. However, he wasn't exactly in the same boat as his workers. Allow me to read an account of Alfred Krupp's time towards the end of the war. It was like a Brecht play. One December, a flight of Lancaster bombers took advantage of the early twilight and arrived during cocktails. Alfred was restless, it was cold out, and the soup was late. Alfred looked annoyed. Then the waiter did the unforgivable. He served a Moselle with meat. Alfred eyed his pale glass and inquired what had become of the red wines. The waiter explained, there had been a brief fire in the servants' quarters. Krupp's eyebrows shot up. What did the fire have to do with the wine? Fidgeting, the waiter stammered that a bomb had hit a pipe. The castle had no water. Alfred Krupp's forehead remained crinkled. He asked, how had the blaze been brought under control? With the Chateauneuf du Papa, the servant mumbled. Alfred stared at him incredulously and murmured, indeed, extraordinary, really, this is too much. He toyed with a solid gold fork. Then he toyed with his solid gold spoon, and then he solemnly tasted the white wine. Ah, good enough, he said quietly. Dinner proceeded without further incident, followed by a game of scat, which he won handily. The Via Wagle mansion had a secret bunker in it called the Krupp Bunker. And as bunkers go, it's very strange, and it sort of honestly reminds me of the Batcave, and I don't mean that like in a positive sense. So, going into the bunker, well, To get to the bunker, there was a hidden door in the family library, which led down a steep staircase into the Chinese room, which was lacquered in black and red. The family explained that it was a throwback to Gustav Krupp's time in Beijing. Then there was a labyrinthine wall-tiled catacombs, a cavernous cellar, the bright green swimming pool adorned with white marble Wilhelmine figures, more white tile, and then a formidable portal marked in stark Gothic letters, Luftschutzbunker 50 Personen, which is to say, air raid shelter, 50 people. So you see, Alfred Krupp did not bravely stay in the Ruhr Valley at the risk of his own life, in quite the same way as his workers did. Out of his 32,000 worker homes, 29,000 were either totally destroyed were severely damaged by the end of the war. For instance, by comparison, Via Wegel was completely unharmed by any bombing. 
Speaking of which, it's time to cover something controversial. The Allies did not specifically target Krupp's weapon factories or even the Ruhr's heavy industry, but instead specifically targeted its population centers instead. And this constituted a clear strategy on the part of the RAF and later also of the U.S. Air Force. In the spring of 1943, the RAF claimed that 250 factories had been destroyed, but photographs clearly show that downtown Cologne was the main target. Something like 14,000 to 15,000 civilians were slaughtered, and very few factories were destroyed. Winston Churchill publicly said that Germany will be subjected to an ordeal the likes of which have never been experienced by a country in continuity, severity, and magnitude. And Churchill wrote to Stalin in more specific and candid terms, saying, We sent 348 heavy bombers to Essen on Saturday, casting 900 tons of bombs in order to increase the damage to Krupps, which was again effectively hit, and to carry ruin into the southwestern part of the city, which had previously suffered little. Of course, Churchill knew that southwestern Essen was entirely residential. After the war, Sir Arthur Harris, a.k.a. Bomber Harris, a.k.a. Butcher Harris, who was the air officer commanding-in-chief of the RAF Bomber Command, said that Bomber Command had concentrated on the complete destruction of four Ruhr cities. Heavy industry was not particularly targeted. Homes and stores were. William Manchester, an American historian, said that the RAF bombing pattern was too consistent to be anything but intentional. What's more, this was not just spiteful. These tactics came out of a specific evolution of a theory of aerial bombing known as strategic bombing. It's been studied quite a bit, obviously by the national security state, of course, but it's also been documented by certain types of pacifist-minded academics. But basically, the theory of strategic bombing was to destroy the nation's capacity to make war, right? But, in this specific context, the RAF was focused on destroying German morale by targeting civilian centers rather than their actual capacity to make weapons. The military, moral, and legal justification for this being questionable at best. Now, there is a long list of very questionable bombings. Like, for example, on May 16, 1943, when they bombed the Mon and Eder dams. The bombing itself was a technical masterpiece, perfectly executed. The bombing caused 334 million tons of water to wipe out the Ruhr Valley railroads and drowned thousands and thousands of civilians. Nobody knows how many people died from this bombing, but the RAF calls it one of the most illustrious episodes in the history of the Royal Air Force. Bombing those dams caused minor flooding in some Krupp factories but the RAF wrote that the bombing occurred with the view of breaking German morale. It was believed that city attacks offered a means of destroying German civilian morale. It was believed that if the morale of industrial workers could be affected, or if laborers could be diverted from the factories to other purposes, such as caring for their families, repairing damage to their homes, war production would suffer. Also, lest you think I'm making this up, we know that the RAF did not target Roar heavy industry because, during this period, very few factories were disrupted or destroyed, 
and they actually increased their production levels, as evidenced by both the reports from British wartime intelligence and the Krupp company and the German army. Hitler had told Albert Speer, the Minister of Armaments and War Production, Give me 600 tanks a month, and we will abolish every enemy in the world. That was the magic figure that was fixated in their minds, 600 tanks a month. By the end of 1943, Germany was producing 1,000 tanks a month. And by November 1944, when the Allies had made their first breach into German soil, Germany was producing 1,800 tanks a month. Production just kept going up, yet they lost more or less because their supply chains broke down elsewhere. For instance, Krupp's factories kept spewing out tanks and aircraft, but their railroads could not get these where they needed to be in the face of the invasions and the bombing of infrastructure. Clearly, the RAF actually spared German heavy industry. But to what end, I can hear you asking. I suppose that this episode has come out well after the British episode of the Who Financed Hitler series. So I guess I do not have to tell you about Albion's perfidy. The British. It's always the British. So before we go into the Nuremberg trial and its overwhelming evidence against the Krupp concern, it's important to remember that they burned massive amounts of evidence before the Allies arrived. This accounts for the frequent absence of direct links between Alfred Krupp and specific crimes, like executions and instructions to Krupp officials at Auschwitz, and also, presumably, the existence of orders and reports on Bushmanshoff, the child concentration camp, and so on, right? One of the Nuremberg prosecution teams said, of course the most damning documents went up in the fire before the Americans arrived, and the defense did not disagree. The tribunal also put this into their judgment, saying, it appears from the evidence that a great volume of documents from the files of the Krupp firm were burned shortly before the entry of the Allied troops into Essen. The significance of the burning of these documents is not to be overlooked. Servants and employees recalled Krupp officials pulling out boxes after boxes of papers and making a giant pyramid with them, dousing them with accelerants, and lighting them all on fire. So let's keep that in mind. In episodes 24 and 25, we talked about the loyalty oath that the Krupps pledged to Adolf Hitler. And we talked about the Lex Krupp, which was the law solidifying their inheritance, right? To quote a portion of the loyalty oath again, I herewith declare that I stand by the National Socialist conception of the state without any reserve, and that I have not been active in any way against their interests. Then the Lex Krupp said, The owner of the family enterprise alone carries the responsibility for and is the head of the entire firm. All matters of importance must be submitted to me as well as to members of the directorate for a decision. Apart from all the other evidence, both of these make it quite clear that even if the Krupps burned all the documents showing direct complicity with war crimes, they were responsible nevertheless. Even without the oath and the Lex Krupp, that would have been the case anyway, but this just makes it all the more airtight. So let's go through some of these crimes. We've already talked about the widespread theft of property, usually in the form of expropriations of factories and equipment all over Europe, and about the slave labor, 
and related abuses, including executions of men, women, and children. There is reason to believe that Krupp was a uniquely evil offender, as we can benchmark them against I.G. Farben's slave labor camps, as perverse as that sounds. And, yes, I know slightly more evil when we're talking about this level of depravity is kind of pointless to point out, but it's interesting nonetheless. One of the Nuremberg prosecutors, Drexel Sprecher, said that he found Krupp's behavior baffling, saying, Alfred's exploitation of slave labor was worse than that of any other industrialist, including I.G. Farben. Nowhere else was there such sadism, such senseless barbarity, such shocking treatment of people as dehumanized material. His power was absolute and therefore absolutely corrupting. At the same time, the men beneath the sovereign could be checked only by him. When he failed to restrain them, they let themselves go. And when the Germans go, they really go. As we discussed, the Allied bombing campaign targeted civilians. And the hardest hit was the slave labor. Germans, indeed anyone subjected to bombings anywhere on the continent, everyone learned pretty quickly that even a basic ditch could save your life if you didn't have the luxury of a Luftschutzbunker, like Alfred Krupp, right? Yet the Krupp concern would not allow the inmates to dig ditches for their own safety, and this caused massive casualties. Another comparison between I.G. Farben's slave labor and Krupp's involved food, the difference being I.G. Farben camps actually gave their slaves the full starvation ration, which was specified by SS rules, while the Krupp camps gave even less than the starvation ration. There's record of a thing called bunker soup, which probably contained about 350 calories, sometimes accompanied by a piece of bread. These rations that the Krupp slaves were getting were much less than they were supposed to get. Consequently, I.G. Farben's inmates stayed alive at much higher rates, while the Krupp inmates died much, much quicker. The main reason for this difference is because I.G. Farben allowed for the SS to administer the food, but Krupp elected to administer their own food to the slaves. The employees in charge of this task cut down on costs, and skimped out on food. Now, if we cared about efficiency, as you might guess, not feeding your slaves tends to undermine your productivity, and so it was with Krupp. Kruppiana, the Krupp workers, they would often sneak food to give to the slaves, in a heartwarming, if depressing, show of solidarity between workers and slaves who recognized their plight. We have a report from Alfred Krupp's personal physician and the chief of Krupp hospitals yet again. He writes, subject, deaths of eastern workers. 54 eastern workers died at the Lazaretstrasse, four of them due to external causes and 50 of disease. The causes of death for these 50 who died were disease from tuberculosis. 38, including two women, died of malnutrition. Two died of hemorrhage to the stomach. One died of intestinal disease, two of typhus, one of pneumonia, three of appendicitis, one of liver disease, one of abscess. The compilation, therefore, shows that four-fifths died of tuberculosis and malnutrition, i.e. 80%. Let's talk about something broader than Krupp for a minute. On December 7th, 1941, Hitler signed the Nacht und Nebel Erlass, 
which is to say the night and fog decree. Originally it was to eliminate people who endangered German security, but it was later brought in to include all persons in occupied countries taken into custody, and who were still alive eight days later. If they were still alive, they were to be transported to Germany secretly, with the prisoners vanishing without a trace, and no information was ever to be given as to their whereabouts or fate. At the Nuremberg trials, Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel said that this was the worst atrocity in which he had collaborated, because it caused the relatives of the criminal and the population to not know their fates. The so-called criminals captured by the Nazis often included the illiterate, the itinerant, and the retarded, meaning that the fates of literally millions of people would never be known. When the Allies finally seized the records of the SD, which is to say the SS Intelligence Agency, they found volumes and volumes of names, with the initial NN scrawled next to them, standing for Noct un Nebel. No one even knows where these people are buried. My contention, and I am not alone in this, is that Noct un Nebel, along with similar practices in Franco Spain, were the original doctrine that formed the practice of forced disappearances known as desaparecidos in Latin America. Let's not forget how many Nazis fled to Latin America after World War II. They estimate that it's around 70,000 Nazis that resettled there. These Nazis brought their tactics to Latin American secret police, who then used them in Operation Condor, where between 60 to 80,000 political prisoners were disappeared. Similar programs existed in Central America and Mexico. Now, I'm not against religion, but I have admired certain militant anti-clerical movements of the past. But let's talk about two types of clergy, one that I admire and the other not as much. So there was a Belgian priest named Father Alfonso Combe who served in a small town. He was captured and sent to one of the Krupp work concentration camps. After the war, Alfred Krupp's lawyers tried to prove that this father was involved with the Belgian resistance, as if that would be damning. Incidentally, he wasn't involved in the Belgian resistance anyway. Father Combe survived, and he kept a diary of his time at the Krupp camp. While he was there, he was inmate number 137. He no longer had a name, and he was not recognized as clergy by the SS. Father Combe was in a very weird position, because Essen had a high number of German Catholics, most of whom still respected him as a man of the cloth. Father Combe refused to stop being a priest, and he would regularly give extreme unction, which is the last rite usually administered to the dying, and he would give it to anyone in the camp who wanted or asked for it and the guards usually allowed it, but the camp commander forbade him and said he would shoot him if Father Combe tried to say mass, and he had to abide by that rule. Father Combe documented many of the terrible conditions of the camp, most of which I will skip so as not to be repetitive, except for a particularly cruel incident where the camp guards allowed the inmates to write Christmas postcards to give to the Red Cross to give to their loved ones back home. Father Combe discovered the charred remains of these postcards, meaning they were never sent. 
Regardless, Father Combe tried to ease the suffering of his fellow inmates, and he would provide what words of religious comfort he could to anyone that would listen. Father Combe spent seven months in the camp. During that time, he sank down to just a hundred pounds. He had to spend five weeks recuperating because, at the end of his time in the camp, he could not walk. When he returned to his parish, no one recognized him, and for the rest of his life, he suffered heart problems and chronic insomnia. William Manchester, the author of the book The Arms of Krupp, he actually had the opportunity to interview Father Combe personally. Father Combe told him quite bitterly, Alfred Krupp has never acknowledged what he did to me and has never given me anything. Now let's contrast that with Essen's Catholic bishop, Dr. Franz Hengsbach. Hengsbach later went on to be a cardinal. His Excellency Dr. Hengsbach regularly wore a ceremonial ring of Krupp coal. William Manchester also got to meet with His Excellency when researching his book, and His Excellency explained, when Gustav was imprisoned in 1923, Essen's bishop visited his cell and begged the French to release him. In September 1962, the same dignitary, now Gustavo Cardinal Testa, and a papal delegate, traveled to Wegel to confer upon Alfred Krupp a gold commemorative medallion in the name of the pontiff. The dynasty's ecclesiastical admirers could easily have remained silent during the hour of trial. They preferred to speak out strongly. Essen did not become a diocese until ten years after Alfred's conviction, but on March 14, 1948, when the prosecution's presentation of its case was approaching a climax at Nuremberg, Joseph Cardinal Frings, the sexagenarian Archbishop of Cologne, delivered a forthright address in ruined Essen, declaring, When I refer to Krupp and to the family of Krupp, I mean those things which have made Essen as big as it is now. I believe I may say that this firm and this family has always showed great social understanding and cared very much for the welfare of their workers and employees. I know that all the people in Essen have been proud of being Krupp workers, employees, and officials. If there is anyone entitled to be an honorable citizen of the city of Essen, then surely it is the head of this house, the prelate contended that he did not want to influence the tribunal. However, he expressed confidence that nobody will think ill of me if I say that I feel very deeply for the fate of the family which was once so well thought of. After this, Alfred Krupp donated the largest stained glass window in Essen's cathedral and helped reconstruct one of their churches and made a variety of donations to Catholic hospitals and universities. His Excellency told William Manchester, a bishop of Essen can, be, can only be grateful to Alfred Krupp. And when William Manchester, the mad lad himself, asked His Excellency about the concentration camps in Essen, His Excellency shook his head and answered sharply, slave labor was a Nazi crime, it had nothing to do with Krupp. His Excellency Cardinal Hengsbach participated in Vatican II and went on to serve as Grand Prior of the Equestrian Order of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem, and he was made President of the German Episcopal Commission for Universal Church Affairs in 1976. As far as I can tell, Father Combe was not invited to participate in Vatican II, or as Grand Prior or any of the other honors. 
comparing and contrasting the behaviors of the supposed followers of Jesus Christ, I am much more inclined to listen to Father Combe, but I may have my doubts about His Excellency Cardinal Hengsbach. Now, have you ever heard about Nazi snuff films? Apparently, after the Valkyrie assassination plot that we've talked about in other episodes, Hitler ordered the plotters to be killed. He said, string them up like cattle. And reportedly, many were actually literally hung up on meat hooks. Filming the executions, Goebbels' cameramen accumulated 80 miles of celluloid. They showed them in theaters to the public. Reportedly, Hitler never tired of the movie, and watching it became one of his favorite diversions. Toward the end of the war, the Krupp company got very invested in liquid assets. Rather than invest assets in war production and lose them, the firm followed a new policy of secretly keeping all assets as liquid as possible. More on that soon. Finally, to cap it off, the beatings and torture of the slaves at Krupp camps in Essen took place within the Krupp company compounds. One of Alfred's secretaries, Fraulein Ilse Wagner, told the court at Nuremberg that she could hear people being tortured from her desk. For reference, her desk was right next to Alfred Krupp's. Quote, the beatings were known to the members of the Werkschutz. They were known to secretaries who were employed in the building. Could they have been unknown to the defendants whose offices were in the building? This quote, of course, coming from the judges at Nuremberg. Now, what can we learn from today? We saw Alfred Krupp more concerned with his wines than with the bombings, being completely insulated from their effects by his special bunker. We saw the Royal Air Force strategy of bombing civilian population centers and choosing these sites over factories and sites of heavy industry and infrastructure. Because, you know, the British, they might need those factories one day, but who cares at all about the German civilians, right? Not that I'm choosing to weep more for German civilians than the victims of the Nazis, but I don't think it's ideologically an inconsistent position to criticize them for not crushing German industry over slaughtering German innocents, German civilians, right? Kurt Vonnegut talked about similar themes in the book Slaughterhouse-Five, where they talk about the firebombing of Dresden, for example, which was absolutely not needed to win the war. And so it goes, right? Now, we know that the Krupp company burned the most damning documents linking Alfred directly to the worst crimes, but there was more than enough to still link him to those crimes. We will see what the cover-up got him, though. Then we talked about Nacht und Nebel, the night and fog decree which institutionalized forced disappearances, which found their way as a demonic technology to Latin America, known as Los Desaparecidos one of the worst legacies of the Nazi diaspora. Then we got to see Father Combe and His Excellency Cardinal Hengsbach, one of whom suffered for his belief in Christ, and the other wore a ring of coal to signify his allegiance to the God of this world. And on that note, I must say that I used the books The Arms of Krupp, The House of Krupp, and Blood and Steel, as well as some Nuremberg documents, and excerpts from Father Combs' diaries. Thank you for listening, dear listener. Check out my Patreon if you want more content. 
It's some good stuff. I need to be on my way to the Nuremberg Justice Palast. See you next week, and God bless. Set.
lips while the guillotine just laughed again. Dancing on the corpse's ashes. And the paramedics had fallen into the womb like a rehired scab in a barehanded plant. An anesthetic penance beneath the hail of contraband. Dancing on the corpse's Dancing on the corpse's ashes. 